The year, 1856. The place, Nicaragua. An American mercenary overthrows the government of a Central American nation. His goal is to create a white supremacist slave empire in the Caribbean. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. This is episode 24, How to Steal a Country. I am your host, James Hauser, and I hope you have an awesome Monday, even if you do have to go back to work. We all have to. It sucks, I know. But today's episode is going to be great. We're going to explore a forgotten era in American history, the rise and fall of the filibuster movement in the 1850s. This is a story that is closely related to and feeds directly into the American Civil War. So I hope you guys are ready for some good old antebellum America. I need to lay out one thing immediately before we get any farther. Otherwise, people will get confused. When I say filibuster today, the word filibuster, I am not referring to the Senate procedural delaying tactic that is the main usage of the word today. I am not using it in a modern political sense. I am referring to the original definition of filibuster, that is, private military adventurers who launched illegal invasions of foreign countries without the consent of their country's government. In the 1850s, these people were called filibusters. Got it? Let's move on. A couple things just to get us going. This is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on. Podcast is PG-13. Language is clean. Content is not. All my sources, some images, some likely much-needed maps, some commentary will be on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. So if you want it, that's where you can find it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So let's dive into it. There are bits of American history that Americans would rather forget. And there are bits of American history that get overshadowed by bigger stories, so they get kind of lost in the noise. And today's story is both. Normally this part of the episode, this part before here before we go on campaign and I get the music rolling, is meant to explain my theme. I usually have a theme of some kind. A gimmick, if you will. Well today, my gimmick is no gimmicks. This episode will be a very straightforward story about one of the most important but least forgotten episodes in American history, the filibuster movement of the 1850s. Now, when I first found out about this, I was honestly kind of shocked that I had never heard about it before. This was back in early 2010s. But the more I read into it, the more I realized why this story is so forgotten. For one thing, it happened during the lead-up to the American Civil War. While the filibuster movement is at its peak, you have the California Gold Rush, Bleeding Kansas, Uncle Tom's Cabin, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, the Dred Scott decision, John Brown at Harper's Ferry, all the landmarks that led to the Civil War. All that stuff takes up airtime in the history books. Which is kind of funny, because the filibusters dominated the newspaper headlines throughout the 1850s, sometimes even more than all that important stuff I just mentioned. But there's another reason the filibusters have been forgotten, and it's because, well, they don't make America look very good. 
what the filibusters were at their core were privately funded armies that tried to invade Latin America, usually to annex new territories into the United States. Basically to do to Mexico or Cuba or Nicaragua what Americans had done to Texas already in the 1830s. And this began a pattern of American interference in Latin America that continues to this day. If you ever wonder why Latin Americans don't trust the United States very much, well, today's episode will explain a little bit of that. But the filibuster movement also played a major role in the lead-up to the Civil War. By understanding it, we will discover a side to the American Civil War that most people don't even know existed. Because many of the filibuster leaders had a very clear motive for their actions— to spread American slavery into new territories and add new slave states to the Union, to create a white-ruled slave empire across Latin America, to expand America's greatest historical shame into untouched territory, to shape the future of the new world in white supremacy and human bondage. And they almost succeeded. Today we'll be talking about the filibuster wars of the 1850s, and one filibuster in particular— William Walker, the supposed gray-eyed man of destiny, one of the most important but least remembered figures in American history. We'll see how the filibuster movement got started and how William Walker's invasions of Mexico, Nicaragua, and Honduras excited and horrified the world. And we will see just how this fits into the Latin American and the American story. And at the end, I will tell you why it matters. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. Because this is an epic story, there will be breaks. These are your chance to pause, wake up your teenager, contemplate your all-too-brief existence in this mortal coil, do the thing you need to do. So strap on your revolver, fasten your suspenders, and take a big old swig of whiskey. Because we're going on campaign. The United States of America was young and growing fast. By 1840, in the 50 years since the first U.S. Census of 1790, the population had more than quadrupled, from less than 4 million to over 17 million. Americans moved west along pioneer roads and Oregon trails, past the Appalachians and past the Mississippi. They were aided by new technologies, by railroads and steamboats and telegraph wires. There was so much land to fill and some people wanted more. In 1845, a New York journalist named John L. O'Sullivan gave American westward expansion a term that every American school kid has heard at least once. His articles talked about the right of our manifest destiny to overspread and to possess the whole of the continent which providence has given us for the development of the great experiment of liberty and federated self-government entrusted to us. O'Sullivan's phrase, Manifest Destiny, implied that it was America's God-given mission to absorb the whole North American continent. Now, there are two sides to the story of Manifest Destiny of American expansion. One side emphasizes spreading the ideals of democracy, liberty, and civilization. The American pioneer spirit, the restless adventuring mindset, the self-made man taming nature to build civilization. The Western movie, version of it, if you will. Of course, there was a darker side to this dream. 
Manifest Destiny's quieter implication was that the new American empire would be white Protestant. The other people, blacks, Indians, Hispanic Catholics, would have to be subdued or annihilated. The Oregon Trail and the Trail of Tears were two sides of the same coin. Only one year after O'Sullivan's articles, Manifest Destiny seemed to be fulfilled. The Mexican-American War, launched with dreams of conquest and Manifest Destiny on everyone's lips, granted the former Mexican provinces of California, New Mexico, and Texas to the growing American nation. Of course, the Indians and Mexicans living in those areas lost their property, their rights, and sometimes their lives, but who cared what they thought? They had to make way for the civilized white man. By 1849, the California Gold Rush made San Francisco a new boomtown, and in less than a decade, California's white immigrants had completely swamped the original inhabitants. America had finished its westward expansion. It stretched from sea to shining sea. But according to some Americans, their nation's expansion was only getting started. So Manifest Destiny's restless warriors looked south, to the Caribbean, to Mexico, to Central America. Problem was, of course, that countries already owned those lands, but whether they deserved to was another matter. See, this was the good old golden age of weapons-grade racism. White Americans looked down on Latinos with their mixed blood heritage, political backwardness, and Catholic religion. That's what they thought, not what I think. Visitors to Cuba or Central America wrote back about the beauty of the land and what a shame it was that it was occupied by such a degenerate people. One Virginia newspaper called Mexicans the most brutal, the most barbarous, the most ignorant of all the people who claim the right of being civilized, cowardly, treacherous, ferocious half-Indians. One Southern politician said that the miserable republics of Central America, peopled by a degraded half-race of humanity, will yet bow to the rule of the Anglo-American. An Alabama newspaper said that Americans would bring moral and material well-being to the disintegrating communities and decaying races of Spanish America. There was this notion, right, that Hispanic people could not rule their own countries, that they didn't deserve to. They needed good, solid white people to rule over them. And this was a common threat train of thought throughout the West in this time period. This is the 19th century. This is when European countries all over the world are conquering Africa and Asia because these people can't rule themselves. They need us to do it for them. And that's what some Americans wanted to do to Latin America. Throughout the 1850s, American politicians, journalists, and just regular old folks openly discussed the prospect of conquest and expansion in Latin America. Newspaper editorials called for it. College students debated it. The Democratic Party platform of 1856 openly endorsed it. Congressmen and senators made speeches calling for America to annex Nicaragua, Panama, parts of Mexico, and most of all, Cuba. It is often forgotten that throughout the 1850s, Presidents Franklin Pierce, Millard Fillmore, and James Buchanan all tried to buy Cuba from Spain with uh, zero success. It's kind of weird that Cuba never did join the United States given how consistently Americans tried to grab it throughout the 19th century. There were several points throughout the 1850s when Americans seriously considered the possibility of war with Spain over Cuba. They were only off by about 40 years or so. But that's a story for another day. 
but pro-annexationists came from all parts of the United States. There were plenty of people in New York, Pennsylvania, or Illinois who wanted to expand American territory. But the strongest and most consistent support came from the South, because to Southerners the idea of expansion South meant the expansion of slavery. Most of Latin America had abolished slavery after gaining independence from Spain, though Cuba, still ruled by Spain, still had slaves. Southerners wanted to preserve slavery in Cuba and reintroduce it in Latin America. This is what tied the dream of a Caribbean empire to the coming civil war. Pro-slavery Americans felt that they were losing power in the U.S. government. The abolitionist movement was gaining strength in the North. California entered the Union as a free state, giving more power to the anti-slavery faction in Congress. There was a low-level guerrilla war in Kansas, bleeding Kansas, over whether the future state would be slave or free. The southern slaveholding aristocracy felt that slavery was under attack and wanted to conquer new slave states in Latin America to consolidate their power. They, they openly said this. Uh, United States Senator Albert Gallatin Brown of Mississippi said this in 1858. I want Cuba, and I know that sooner or later we must have it. I want Tamalipa, Potosi, and one or two other Mexican states, and I want them all for the same reason, for the planting or spreading of slavery. And a foothold in Central America will powerfully aid us in acquiring those other states. Yes, I want these countries for the spread of slavery. His fellow Mississippi senator, a guy you might have heard of named Jefferson Davis, sponsored a bill to purchase Cuba and add it to the Union as a slave state. Southerners dreamed of a great empire of slavery, stretching south across the Caribbean and maybe even South America. There was even a secret society called the Knights of the Golden Circle that, wanted, that proposed this slave empire. The Golden Circle was encircling the Caribbean. They wanted not just the Confederate South eventually, but also Mexico, Central America, Cuba, and Northern South America as the great slave empire of the Americas. The ideal of manifest destiny and the dream of a slave empire combined to create the filibusters. When we think of the term filibuster in the modern day, I think pretty much everyone listening to this will start having modern headlines flash across their minds. In the 21st century, filibuster is universally used to refer to tactics used in the U.S. Senate to stall legislation. But the word meant something different in the 1850s. Filibusters were military adventurers, private citizens who launched unauthorized invasions of foreign countries. And in the decade before the American Civil War, the filibuster movement was at its peak. Filibuster expeditions, although they weren't called that at the time, had occurred almost since the creation of America. Aaron Burr, of all people, was involved in a couple of plots in the early 1800s. There were attacks on Mexico and British Canada in the 1830s and 1840s. But the period between the Mexican-American War and the Civil War, 1848-1860, saw by far the most filibustering expeditions. This is when the term was invented, from the Spanish filibustero, from an old Dutch word for freebooter. So this is the original definition of the term filibuster. The most successful filibustering expedition had been Texas. Most of the defenders of the Alamo and most of Sam Houston's fighters at San Jacinto had all come from the United States only a couple of months previously. They were not native Texans. By any definition, Texas was the most successful of all filibuster projects because a bunch of Americans came in, 
uh, attacked the Mexicans, took their land, and nine years later, it was part of the United States. Sorry, that's just what happened. So the filibusters were trying to pull a Texas, pull a Texas in some other part of Latin America. It's hard to get across how wild and how absolutely illegal this was. The filibusters were essentially doing freelance imperialism. They would raise recruits in San Francisco, New Orleans, or New York, secure weapons, boats, and money, then sail off and try to take over some random Caribbean country. Or they would cross over the Mexican border with a hundred men or so to try and launch an uprising. The filibusters were acting in violation of the Neutrality Act, which made it illegal to launch an invasion of a foreign country from American soil. Which, you know, the fact that they had to make a law for that means it was a problem, right? So they usually found legal technicalities to try and skirt the law, which brought them into conflict with federal authorities. But the first big filibuster leader wasn't even American. Narciso Lopez was a Venezuelan-born Spanish officer who had served in Cuba and gotten involved in its local independence movement. He ended up fleeing to New York in 1848 after his plotting was discovered and decided to organize an expedition to, quote, liberate Cuba. He had backers in the Cuban slaveholding elite because they were worried that Spain might ban slavery in the near future. And this same fear gave a lot of southern slaveholders anxiety that there would be a bunch of free slaves on their southern coast all of a sudden. So a lot of southern slaveholders backed this as well. So the primary driving force of Narciso Lopez's expeditions to Cuba was to keep slavery alive in Cuba and add it to the United States as another slaveholding state. Lopez was led to believe by these Cuban slaveholders that if he managed to land in Cuba, the people would rise up in his support. So this was the goal of Lopez's filibuster expedition, to seize the island from Spain and annex it into the United States, to pull a Texas. Among Lopez's top supporters was none other than John L. O'Sullivan, who had coined the phrase Manifest Destiny. In 1849, Lopez set out for Cuba with around 600 men, but he was stopped and turned back by the U.S. Navy, which was enforcing the Neutrality Act. Well, time to try again. So Lopez moved his headquarters to New Orleans and got more recruits and funding from the slaveholding South. He appealed to their dreams of a Caribbean slaveholding empire and stoked those fears that if Cuba freed its slaves, it would threaten slavery in America. He tried to recruit two of the Mexican-American War's most famous heroes, Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee, but both of them turned him down. He did gain the support of John Quidman, governor of Mississippi and one of the fiercest pro-slavery advocates. Lopez's second expedition, with 600 American recruits, landed on Cuban soil in May 1850, so at least they got to Cuba this time. But then Lopez discovered that not only were the Cubans not rising up in his support, but the Spanish army was waiting for him. The filibusters were forced to run back to the boats and escape to the United States, where Lopez and his men were put on trial for violating the Neutrality Act. But no Southern jury would ever convict any filibuster, they were Manifest Destiny's new warriors, doing God's work in expanding white supremacy and slavery, <clears throat> I mean civilization, to the racially inferior, <clears throat> I mean poor oppressed Hispanics. In August 1851, Lopez launched his third invasion of Cuba, but he was not third time lucky, or maybe, I guess, technically the Spanish were third time lucky. His military incompetence allowed most of the expedition to be surrounded and captured. 
Most of them were put up against a wall and executed by firing squad, con uh, convicted of piracy. These included William Crittenden, the son of the U.S. Attorney General. Lopez himself was publicly garroted, strangled to death, in the courtyard of Havana's Castillo de la Punta. The execution of Lopez and his filibusters sparked a wave of outrage across the United States. Mobs in New Orleans attacked Spanish citizens and stormed the Spanish consulate. Newspapers and speeches proclaimed the cruelty of the Spaniards, the brave spirit of Lopez and his would-be conquerors, and the need to finish what they had started. Over the next decade, thousands of men would follow in Narciso Lopez's footsteps. It was the age of the filibuster. Throughout the period, 1848 to 1860, there were basically always one or two filibuster projects in some stage of planning. In 1855, an Alabama lawyer named Harry Morey complained about the recent cancellation of John Quidman's Cuban project. But that was okay. He could join Henry Kenney's Honduras expedition, Jeremiah Clemens' Ecuador expedition, William R. Henry's invasion of Mexico, or William Walker's expedition to Nicaragua. There were even rumors that filibusters might attack Hawaii, Ireland, or Japan. Again, think about how wild these little projects are, like violent racist MLMs. Be your own boss. Get away from your corporate job. Recruit your friends. Help us invade Cuba and set up a slave empire for the low, low price of five bucks a month. Order now and you'll get malaria. So yeah, who are these people? Now I need to make an important distinction. While the filibuster movements usually got their funding and backing from slaveholding Southerners, this did not necessarily mean that most of the recruits were motivated by this. Your average filibuster was an unemployed white male in his 20s, usually recruited in one of the major American seaports. Not all filibusters were Southerners, and not all Southern slaveholders supported the filibusters. There were lots of Northerners, Westerners, and even recent immigrants. Lopez's 137 men captured in Cuba included 28 men from mainland Europe, 10 from Ireland, and one from Malta. The filibuster's main motivator was economic. The growing population and economic changes caused by the Industrial Revolution left lots of folks unemployed and drifting. Mexican War veterans had been discharged without a job to go back to. Filibusters from California were mostly failed gold rushers and unemployed miners. Some men were literally homeless. They signed on for pay, rations, adventure, and the prospect of loot or the promise of land. Even some free black people joined filibustering expeditions. The filibusters embodied the image of the American frontiersmen. They were arrogant, cocky, overconfident. They were obsessed with guns and casual violence, often engaging in duels or just straight murdering people. Many of them were convicted criminals. Filibusters were also a very boozy bunch. Many expeditions ran into military failure because some of their men were drunk or doing their best to get there. They were brave, downright suicidally so, usually fueled by alcohol and a good old sense of American invincibility. Filibusters had a bad habit of charging in like maniacs and getting slaughtered. They do this all the time. Mortality rates on these expeditions were extremely high, both from disease and from combat and from accidents, because when everybody's drunk, there's a lot of accidents. Who knew? Not that it stopped anybody, lots of men were repeat filibusters, and you see the same set of names showing up often in multiple expeditions. 
but the United States government pulled its hair out trying to stop the filibusters. Filibustering was illegal, absolutely illegal, but public opinion was often on their side. The feds were prevented from enforcing the Neutrality Act by trickery, legal shenanigans, and sympathetic politicians. Navy and Coast Guard ships might try and stop the filibusters, but local and state officials would shield them from prosecution. Federal government was just much weaker in those days. Very few filibusters were ever convicted, since juries full of sympathetic white Southerners would almost always acquit them, no matter what, no matter how obviously guilty they were. So the U.S. government usually failed to stop filibuster expeditions from getting off the ground, and this really pissed other countries off. Latin American governments, along with Britain, Spain, and France, gave the USA all kinds of grief over the filibuster menace. From their point of view, yeah, it was like the U.S. had turned into a Pez dispenser of racist pirates. The irony is that filibustering expeditions often hurt American efforts to acquire more land peacefully. Like I mentioned, throughout the 1850s, the U.S. government was trying to buy Cuba from Spain. They were also trying to buy more bits of northern Mexico. The Spanish were completely uninterested in selling the last remnant of their old American empire, despite repeated offers and pressure from the U.S. They might have been more willing to sell Cuba if, from their perspective, Americans hadn't kept trying to steal it. There was like an implicit threat sometimes that sounded like where Americans were like, hey, sell us Cuba before we take it. And of course Spain is like, no. Same thing with Mexico. It was hard for the Mexican government to justify selling land to the Yankees if it would just be a launch point for more filibusters. Give them an inch, they'll take the whole continent. But filibustering wasn't just a political and military thing. It became a cultural obsession. There were plays, songs, poems, novels, and stories, romanticizing and playing up the spectacle of brave white Americans going off to conquer and civilize new lands. Advertisements for stores claimed that all the filibusters only bought boots and clothes and whiskey from their store. Get your illegal invasion gear at Tractor Supply. Throughout the 1850s, the filibusters took up one headline after another. Chicago, Mobile, New Orleans, New York, and San Francisco newspapers often had advertisements for men to go on a, quote, mining expedition to Cuba or Mexico, though it wasn't hard to figure out what they were really advertising. Mining expeditions usually had more shovels and less rifles. And if I need to remind you, all of this was taking place in the last years before the Civil War. The North and South were drifting apart over the issue of slavery. Northerners resented the Fugitive Slave Act, read the abolitionist novel Uncle Tom's Cabin, and supported the Underground Railroad, sometimes. Southerners grew more radical in their defense of slavery, openly declaring it the greatest institution on earth, not a necessary evil like the founders had thought of it, but as a positive good. The issues of bleeding Kansas in the 1850s and the Supreme Court's Dred Scott case in 1857 dominated the headlines. But these news stories sat side by side with news stories about the filibuster expeditions to Mexico, Cuba, and Nicaragua. In many cases, the things that American history thinks are important, all the lead up to the Civil War, were at the time overshadowed by the filibusters. But as the decade went on, filibustering became another wedge issue between North and South. It had originally been popular across America, but as the slavery issue grew in intensity, it became more popular with the South and less with the North. The South saw filibustering as their means of preserving and expanding slavery, of branching slave power out across the hemisphere. 
The North saw the filibusters as the embodiment of slave power, the spreading of America's original sin over the whole continent. Filibustering became another critical element in the lead-up to the Civil War. The Southern dream of a Caribbean slave empire fired up pro-slavery Southerners and rallied abolitionist Northerners against them. And for all that, most of the expeditions were failures, almost all of them. The vast majority of filibuster schemes fell apart before they even got off the ground, usually due to lack of money. Even when the filibusters did manage to launch an invasion, it usually took about a few days or weeks before the invaders were driven out, killed, or captured and executed. Most countries viewed the filibusters as basically pirates, illegal invaders who merited no protection under the law. Henry Crabb, for instance, led a hundred-man invasion of Sonora in 1857. Supposedly for the purpose of mining and settling there, but really intending to conquer Sonora and in process of time add it to the slave states. But Henry Crabb ran head-on into 1,200 Mexican soldiers, and it ended predictably with the surrender and execution of his entire force. Crabb's head was cut off and preserved in a jar of vinegar. Lots of filibusters met the same fate as Crab, though usually not with a whole bottled head thing. They didn't tell you that part in the MLM sales pitch. But there was one filibuster who put all the rest in his shadow. One filibuster in particular who showed the rest of them how stealing a country was done. Almost forgotten today, he was a household name in his own time. The freelance imperialist, the entrepreneur of Manifest Destiny. His name was William Walker. William Walker did not look or behave like a filibuster. The stereotypical filibuster was brawny, bearded, wild, a booze hound, and a wild card. The friend you don't invite over because he might be fun, but he's going to break most of the stuff in your house. But William Walker was different. He was short, almost petite, 5 foot 5 and 119 pounds. His pale, freckled face was clean shaven, and his hair was so blonde that it was almost white. Did he look like a vampire? Yeah, kinda. Like a crazy southern filibuster? Absolutely not. His only standout features were his glimmering green-gray eyes. Walker's habits were also unusual. He was shy, quiet, a monotone voice, and the charisma of a ceiling fan. He didn't smoke, didn't drink, seems to have been mostly uninterested in women, living his entire life a childless bachelor. Based on my readings, he might well have died a virgin. He had none of the usual filibuster vices. Come to think of it, maybe that was why he was the most successful and famous filibuster of all. William Walker was born in Nashville, Tennessee on May 8, 1824, the oldest of the six children of James and Mary Walker. The Walkers were a well-off business-owning family prominent in the still very young state of Tennessee. While they weren't plantation owners, James Walker did own a small number of enslaved people by 1840. William grew up in a fiercely religious, slave-owning Southern household. But he was extremely intelligent. William graduated from the University of Nashville at 14 and gained his medical degree at UPenn at 19. Granted, this was 19th century America, the standards were a little bit different. Plus, he wasn't distracted by, like, his Xbox or something. 
Walker completed his education with medical studies in Europe, but he only practiced medicine for a little while before moving on. It was a restless age, and he was a restless, ambitious young man. William Walker changed careers like a girl changes clothes. He moved to New Orleans, where he studied law and qualified for the state bar. Then he changed careers again from law to journalism, becoming editor of the New Orleans Crescent, one of the city's major papers. And it is here that Walker's story begins to merge with the filibuster story, because the Crescent and its new editor joined a chorus advocating for the annexation of Cuba, putting Walker openly in the pro-filibuster camp. During his stay in New Orleans, Walker also had what is by most accounts the only romance of his life, an unconsummated love affair with a woman named Ellen Martin. Despite being both deaf and mute, Ellen was the flower of New Orleans society, and Walker went as far as to learn sign language to communicate with his crush. But then Ellen died of yellow fever in April 1849. After that, according to his friends, Walker's personality changed dramatically. The quiet, sensitive young man grew colder, harder, violent. In August 1849, four months after Ellen's death, Walker and a friend went to the office of a Spanish-language newspaper that had feuded with the Crescent. When the editor refused to apologize for an insult, Walker suddenly swung his cane and struck the man in the head several times before being pulled away. This sudden violence was completely out of character from the shy, quiet little man his friends and family had known. I mean, this is a scrawny little Draco Malfoy-looking dude who is not going to win most fights he gets into. But he had changed. When he set out for California to make his fortune a few months later, like many Americans, it was a different man than the one who had studied medicine and romanced a disabled woman. This was the William Walker who would become Manifest Destiny's new champion. By 1849, Walker was set up in San Francisco, working as a journalist once again. His newspaper, the San Francisco Herald, picked fights with corrupt government officials and stirred up mob violence against its enemies, which landed Walker in jail more than once. Walker's rabble-rousing got him into a total of three duels in California, and he was wounded in two of them. But Walker also followed the filibuster campaigns of Narciso Lopez with great attention and became infatuated with the romantic notion of invading foreign lands and conquering them with his good American white manliness. By 1853, Walker was beginning to plan a filibuster operation of his own. Now, I'll be completely upfront with you guys. I am not entirely sure what drove or guided William Walker into the filibuster movement. He wasn't a radical pro-slavery man, at least not openly and not yet. He was gainfully employed. He had zero military experience whatsoever. None of the usual indicators for filibusters were there. It is harder to get inside William Walker's head than most characters in this podcast so far. But I can hazard a guess. A good woman can change a man, and losing one can do the same thing. Walker's character changed after Ellen Martin's death. He started to act out violently and close himself off from emotion. Every description of Walker, especially after Ellen Martin's death, describes the emotionless stare of those gleaming gray eyes. An ambitious, brilliant man who has cut himself off from emotional attachments with a newfound tendency towards violence. Add salt and racism, and you have a recipe for a filibuster. 
Walker's first filibuster and expedition would target Mexico, specifically its two westernmost states of Baja California and Sonora. Now, Mexico was a favorite filibuster target for a few reasons. It bordered the United States, it had a weak and unstable central government, and lots of fugitive slaves tended to escape across the Rio Grande from Texas. Multiple filibuster expeditions into Mexico had the goal of recovering quote-unquote human property belonging to Texan slave masters. But at first, surprisingly, Walker tried to do this thing legally. He tried to gain permission from the Mexican government to set up a colony. He traveled down to Sonora's main port of Guaymas in 1853 to put this request forward, claiming that he wanted to found a frontier colony to protect Mexican citizens from Apache raiders. The Mexicans thought this was sus. Every time Americans settled in Mexico, those regions had a bad tendency to become part of the United States. Just look what happened in Texas. So they said no. Walker returned to San Francisco and went with Plan B, to use force to establish an independent Republic of Sonora, consisting of Baja California and Sonora, then seek annexation into the United States. This was the classic filibuster move, pulling a Texas. Walker combed San Francisco for recruits and investors for something he called a, quote, mining expedition. He funded the expedition through the sale of bonds issued by the currently non-existent Republic of Sonora, which were bought up by Southerners eager to expand slavery into Mexican territory. Most of the recruits were failed gold rushers who had gambled or drunk away all their money and had nothing to lose. You know, the best people for a military expedition. Despite attempts by local police and federal troops to stop him, the expedition got off the ground, which to be fair was more than 80% of filibuster projects ever accomplished. On October 17, 1853, Walker and 45 men set sail from San Francisco. Their ship was loaded with muskets, carbines, revolvers, and a few small cannons. The men were loaded with whiskey. That All the accounts are they were almost all drunk when they left port. As soon as they were on the open seas, the so-called mining expedition began to practice with their weapons, not a shovel or a mining pick in sight. On November 3rd, Walker arrived off the coast of La Paz, the small, sleepy capital of Baja California. If you don't know what Baja California is, where that is, that's the long, thin peninsula on the western side of Mexico. Within hours, Walker's men were storming into La Paz, waving rifles and revolvers. They captured the governor of the state and raised Walker's self-designed flag of two horizontal red bars and two red stars. The Republic of Sonora, or right now the Republic of Baja California. The, the name would change several times. William Walker immediately started issuing decrees as the self-appointed president of his new republic and sent reports back to San Francisco with stories of his magnificent victories quote, victories, right? He also announced the new republic would adopt the legal codes of Louisiana, not California, Louisiana. This was not as innocent as it sounded because the laws of Louisiana, unlike those of Mexico, allowed for slavery. One San Francisco newspaper spelled it out for anyone who was confused. Mr. Walker has lived in Louisiana and is a man of intelligence and a lawyer, and of course knows that that code recognizes and protects and legislates for slavery. It is entirely useless to say, in the face of this fact, that Walker is opposed to slavery. He expressly sanctions it by adopting, unchanged, the law of Louisiana. 
Now, at this point in his life, there is not much on record as to Walker's opinions on slavery. He didn't say much about it. But the fact that he did adopt the entire legal code of Louisiana, when a couple of changes would have made slavery illegal, well, that says something, at least. The filibusters received reinforcements from San Francisco, failed prospectors drawn by Walker's reports of glorious success. He was good at propaganda. He had been a newspaper man after all. But the reality was somewhat different. The Americans were arguing and dueling each other all the time. Walker's authority was arbitrary, draconian, and frequently violent. He was a bad boss. Desertion rates were high and morale sank as the expedition stalled out with no clear path forward. Then, of course, there were the Mexicans. Walker's men had been rampaging across the Mexican countryside, confiscating food and supplies and horses by order of the president of Lower California. Anyone who refused or resisted was a traitor to the republic that had been founded last week. Like, imagine someone breaks into your house, declares it's their house now, and demands that you give them all your food because this is their house. And if you eat your own food, you're accused of stealing from them. What? So yeah, the filibusters made immediate enemies of the entire countryside. Even though Mexican troops never arrived to fight the filibusters, the central government in Mexico City had very little control over this area. The citizens of Baja, California began unloading full Latino rage on the filibusters. Their leader was a charismatic 23-year-old landowner, Antonio Maria Melendres, who proved to be a much better military commander than his nemesis William Walker. See, this was always the big mistake of the filibusters, underestimating their opponents. They viewed Latin Americans as lesser people who didn't deserve the land they occupied. One of Walker's messages to San Francisco stated that, The territory under Mexican rule would forever remain wild, half-savage and uncultivated, covered with an indolent and half-civilized people. When the people of a territory fail to develop the resources nature has placed at their command, the interests of civilization require others to go in and possess the land. But racism is not only immoral and incorrect, on a military level, it can damage your threat assessment capabilities. Walker and other filibusters constantly assumed that the lazy half-breed Latinos, their words, their ideas, not mine, could never defeat the big, strong white Americans. This was a false assumption, and they would pay for it time and again. By early 1854, Walker's expedition was on the rocks. They were isolated in the dry, rugged mountains of Baja and Sonora, harassed and pursued by Melendrez's Mexican forces. The filibusters were exhausted, starving, sunburnt, drunk, undisciplined, and deserting in droves. They had very few supplies, almost no military experience, and Walker grew more unpopular by the day. One man wrote about Walker, his vanity makes him tyrannical. His weakness renders him cruel. His unbounded and senseless ambition has led him to believe himself born to command. Retreating from Melendrez's cavalry, the filibusters made for the California border. Walker and his 34 surviving men crossed into the United States on May 8, 1854, his 30th birthday. They were disarmed and taken into federal custody, and the alleged Republic of Sonora ceased to exist. Walker's venture into Mexico had lasted seven months and ended in utter failure, but he did get away alive, and not every filibuster could say that. Figuring out why he failed is mm, 
A bunch of whiskey swigging gold miners with zero military experience and limited supplies, led by a weird little vampire looking dude in suspenders with a revolver, trying to conquer hundreds of miles of desert from a bunch of angry Mexicans? Doesn't take a military genius to figure out where this one went wrong. Not sure what they thought was going to happen. But guys, this is pretty much how most filibuster expeditions went. Heck, the fact that Walker managed to occupy anything for any amount of time made him way more successful than most of them. Lots of folks ended up like Henry Crabb with their head in a jar like it was grandma's apricot preserves. But William Walker was addicted. Mexico had been an appetizer. He was already looking for his next target. Walker went on trial in San Francisco for violating the Neutrality Act, which, yeah, he was very obviously guilty of. But many of the locals supported the filibuster movement. When Walker was brought before a grand jury on October 16, 1854, the defense focused on technicalities and loopholes in the law. William Walker had raised a private army on American soil and invaded a foreign country with the goal of conquering its territory. But had he broken the law? From my point of view, yes, duh, but the jury didn't see it that way. The jury took eight minutes to reach its verdict. Innocent. And Walker was free. So William Walker not only invaded a foreign country with the personal army, he had gotten away with it, and he was suddenly a household name. Despite what should have been the obvious incompetence and failure that his entire expedition had come with, many people now treated him as a celebrity, a romantic hero, who had fought for the manhood of Americans and the triumph of the white race. Other Americans condemned him as a pirate, a criminal, a robber, and murderer who had plundered Mexican territory in order to expand slavery. But Walker was already looking for his next opportunity, and this would be the one that would make him the most infamous filibuster of all, Nicaragua. In the 1850s, the small Central American country of Nicaragua received a lot of international attention. Many countries saw Central America as the ideal location for a canal, a way to allow sea travel between the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans and boost world trade. We know that by 1914, the United States would build the Panama Canal. But in the 1850s, Nicaragua was considered the prime location. The large inland Lake Nicaragua and navigable rivers meant that building a canal would just mean widening pre-existing water routes. And in the 1850s, Nicaragua was the main transit route for Americans traveling from the East Coast to the West Coast. They would take a steamship up the San Juan River from the Atlantic Ocean to the Nicaraguan capital city of Granada on Lake Nicaragua. Then they would cross overland to the port of San Juan del Sur on the Pacific, where another steamer would take them to San Francisco. This was by far the shortest way to get from New York to San Francisco in the 1850s. Going overland took much longer. American travel through Nicaragua attracted major investment from American businessmen. One of these was the great steamship tycoon Cornelius Vanderbilt, whose accessory transit company carried American passengers and goods from the west coast to the east coast and back via Nicaragua. But some Americans saw Nicaragua in a different light. Southerners saw its tropical climate and fertile soil as prime plantation territory. It was such a shame that Nicaragua had abolished slavery back in 1824. Maybe someone could fix that. Nicaraguans, especially Nicaraguan liberals, had a very positive image of the United States in the early 1850s. They associated it with freedom, economic growth, technology, and civilization. They looked up to America and wanted to be like America. 
Though there was some friction, most Nicaraguans welcomed American businessmen and visitors, since they brought so much money and prosperity into their country. Nicaraguan liberals wanted to model their country on the United States. As we will see, this attitude will be gone by the end of this episode. Americans will not be popular in Nicaragua, post-William Walker. Nicaragua was politically unstable in the years after its independence, sharply divided between ideological factions. The high-minded ideals of the Nicaraguan liberals conflicted with the conservative landowning class, and this conflict had turned into a civil war. The liberals based in León and the conservatives based in Granada were fighting a war for the future of the country, and by 1854, the liberals were losing. They needed help, and for help they looked to America. In particular, one American well-known for his military adventures. The liberals decided to make a deal with the famous filibuster William Walker. It would be the biggest mistake they ever made. Walker accepted the Nicaraguan invitation. He agreed to bring American filibusters to help the liberals defeat the conservatives in return for a large grant of land. The liberals hoped that attracting American settlement and investment would promote the modernization of their nation. Walker found 57 recruits to join up in San Fran, and to me it's kind of amazing that Walker was able to get anybody to follow him, given that A, he was a pale, moody femboy who was bad at public speaking with the charisma of dog vomit, and that B, his last adventure in Mexico had been a fiasco. But he got him. There must have been something about him, though for the life of me I could not tell you what it was. Walker and his 57 men set out from San Francisco just after midnight on May 4, 1855. They reached the Nicaraguan coast at Realejo on June 16th, and the next day Walker wrote to Leon to meet with the leader of the liberal faction, President Francisco Castellon. Castellon formally mustered Walker and his men into the Nicaraguan army, gave him the rank of colonel, and dubbed his new unit La Falange Americana, the American Phalanx. The filibusters were now officially citizens of Nicaragua and part of its army. The Walker, of course, had an agenda of his own. By inviting William Walker into Nicaragua to fight their war for them, the liberals had invited the fox into the hen house. They wouldn't realize it until it was too late. Walker's strategy in the Nicaraguan Civil War was to gain control of the vital transit route, the path that Americans took when they were crossing Nicaragua. The transit route would dominate Walker's thinking throughout his stay in Central America, since recruits, supplies, and money for his forces came from the United States, and this required control of the transit route. So Walker's first target would be Rivas, a key point on the transit road from Lake Nicaragua to the Pacific. The First Battle of Rivas on June 29, 1855 was a disaster for Walker and his filibusters. They launched a reckless attack on the well-defended city, running straight headlong into conservative army forces. A bunch of random American mercenaries charging into the center of town firing pistols and rifles like they were in a Wild West show were no match for a disciplined unit, even a Nicaraguan one. The Americans had once again underestimated Latin Americans and they paid for it. The filibusters were forced to hole up in a building. They were driven out when a local schoolteacher named Emanuel Mongoloi Rubio set their hideout on fire, forcing them to flee back into the jungle. Incidentally, Mongoloi Rubio is considered a national hero in Nicaragua today. 
The Battle of Ribas showcased the filibusters' weaknesses. They were suicidally brave, that wasn't a good thing, and also undisciplined, disorganized, foolhardy, arrogant, and usually drunk. Imagine a ragtag bunch of modern frat boys and redneck militia who think that actual combat is just like Call of Duty, give them each like five cans of Four loco, and you have a pretty good picture of what the filibusters were like. Like his men, Walker had approximately zero military training, no sense of tactics or organization or logistics. American filibusters got trounced by regular old Latin American troops most of the time. But Walker bounced back from his defeat at Ribas. His battered men withdrew into the small town of Virgin Bay, closely followed by the conservative forces of Jose Santos Guardiola. Guardiola's troops attacked Virgin Bay on September 3rd, but Walker's men and 170 Nicaraguan allies stood firm, firing from behind their barricades with rifles, pistols, and cannon. Guardiola's army was torn to shreds by the American phalanx and their allies. Walker himself was in the forefront, displaying his usual suicidal bravery, a bullet grazing his throat and another only being stopped by the letters he kept in his shirt pocket. The strange little blonde man led his troops with fury, and by the end of the day the conservatives had been dealt a serious blow. They left 60 dead behind in their retreat from Virgin Bay. Walker was determined to strike while his enemy was off balance. He had received reinforcements from San Juan del Sur, and more American renegades were joining his ranks. By October, Walker had nearly 120 men in the American phalanx, and was planning his next move. One of his officers, Charles Doubleday, was curious as to what Walker's ultimate plans were. He claimed to be fighting for freedom for Nicaragua's people, but Walt, what did Walker really want? Walker's like, you want to know? You want to know seriously? Okay, I'll tell you. I'm going to win the civil war for the liberals. I'm going to use the army to take over the government. Then I'm going to conquer the rest of Central America with my filibuster army, then expand into Mexico and Cuba, and found a white-ruled slave empire with myself as the emperor. That's my plan. You like it? Doubleday did not like it. Doubleday was appalled. This was, he, was, he was actually anti-slavery. This is not what he had signed on for. Doubleday resigned, but this just goes to show not all filibusters were hardcore slavery people, but almost all their leaders were. I wonder how many initial recruits Walker would have gotten if he'd been honest with them from the get-go about his ultimate plans. Still though, Nicaragua was step one. And to win this war, Walker had a very simple plan, a diversion. The main liberal army would march out of Leon, drawing the main conservative forces under General Ponciano Corral away from the capital city of Granada. In the meantime, Walker and his phalanx hijacked one of Cornelius Vanderbilt's steamboats, the La Virgen. Around 200 Americans and 200 Nicaraguans hid inside the river steamer as it puffed its way over Lake Nicaragua towards the capital. In the early morning hours of October 13, 1855, Walker and his filibusters stormed the city. Corral's forces were away at the front lines and barely any conservative soldiers were present. The defenders ran off into the forest, leaving only three dead behind. Out of nowhere, William Walker and his filibusters had captured Nicaragua's capital, a city of 10,000 people. But taking the capital alone would not win the war. General Corral still had almost a thousand troops outside the city, and he refused Walker's proposals for a ceasefire. But when a conservative force accidentally shot a few American travelers, Walker used this as an excuse to show the Nicaraguans who they were messing with. 
He publicly executed a conservative politician in the main plaza of Granada and took the families of Corral's officers hostage. Walker threatened to execute the conservatives' families if they didn't accept his peace terms. Terrified by the filibuster threat, the conservatives agreed to end the Civil War. On October 23, 1855, Walker and Corral met in Granada to begin the peace talks. Liberals and conservatives agreed to come together in a provisional government. The elderly conservative politician, Patricio Rivas, was named president. But with now General William Walker as commander-in-chief of the Nicaraguan army. Rivas might have been president, but everyone knew who was really in charge. The plan William Walker laid out to Doubleday was succeeding. Step one was complete. Five months after landing in Nicaragua, he and his filibusters had stolen a country. It was one thing to steal a country, but another thing to keep it. Because Walker's new regime would turn a filibuster expedition into a regional interstate conflict. William Walker had sparked the filibuster war. William Walker's new Nicaraguan regime faced an uphill battle since no other country on earth saw it as legitimate. The fact that a handful of drunk Americans and their creepy vampire king had basically stolen a country was lost on no one. United States Secretary of State William L. Marcy summed up the feelings of the international community. It appears that a band of foreign adventurers has by violence overturned the previously existing government. It is no more than a violent usurpation of power, brought about by an irregular self-organized military force, as yet unsanctioned by the will or acquiescence of the people of Nicaragua. It has more the appearance of a successful marauding expedition than a change of government or rulers. Nevertheless, Hordes of Americans flocked to Walker's banner. The steamship transit lines brought hundreds of filibusters to join Walker's cause, and thousands of colonists looking for land or opportunity. One of them was even Sarah Pellet, an early feminist and temperance lecturer who saw Walker's regime as a positive force. Nicaraguan newspapers, now written in English, reported the golden opportunities that awaited American settlers. They described the country as paradise on earth, a land of milk and honey, and William Walker as the Southern Moses. The newspapers reported the Nicaraguan legend of the gray-eyed man of destiny who would liberate their country, which the newspapers are completely made up because Walker now had his own propaganda machine. He had been a newspaper man after all. And Walker's new regime attracted American settlers and investment. Soon after taking power, he promised 250 acres of land to any American who showed up and tried to hire American experts to improve the country's economy and administration. This was what the Nicaraguan liberals had said they wanted, so they looked at all the Americans pouring in, at Walker acting like a dictator, and they were like, oh, this is fine, this is fine. These are Americans, we love Americans, they're gonna make our country better. But William Walker was slowly forcing native Nicaraguans out of the picture. 
He introduced new laws and new procedures designed to confiscate Nicaraguan land and give it to American settlers. And he made English the new language of the bureaucracy to conceal his legal shenanigans. The goal was to Americanize Nicaragua, to force the natives off their land and turn them into an underclass. Manifest destiny to do to the Latinos what America had done to the Indians. Soon after he took power, Walker's men intercepted a letter from the conservative General Corral, urging other Central American countries to come save them from the Americans. For this quote-unquote treason, Walker had Corral publicly executed by firing squad on November 8, 1855, not the last execution Walker would order. This was in spite of the tearful pleas of his daughters and many of Granada's women, who went to Walker to beg for a pardon, but made no headway against his cold gray eyes. For many Nicaraguans, this was the moment they realized that they had made a deal with the devil. But the devil was in trouble. William Walker had very few friends and a whole, whole lot of enemies. The fact that he had stolen a country had the understandable side effect of freaking out all of Nicaragua's neighbors. The other countries of Central America saw Walker's new regime as a threat and worried that they might be next. Well, according to Walker's master plan, they absolutely were next, so this was entirely justified. Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras all formed an alliance to overthrow the Walker regime. They were joined by a Nicaraguan resistance that grew by the day, as disaffected liberals, resistant conservatives, and poor farmers forced off their land rallied to liberate their country. This conflict, which lasted from 1856 to 1857, became known as the Filibuster War. William Walker and his filibusters versus basically everyone else. The filibuster war would revolve around Walker's attempts to keep the vital transit road, the land and water route from the Pacific to the Atlantic, open for business. This road, A, contained most of Nicaragua's major cities, B, provided most of his revenue, and C, had all the entry points for all his support from the United States. If Walker stopped receiving this support, if he was cut off from the transit road, his regime would collapse. He and his men constantly wrote back to America, asking them to send lawyers, guns, and money. Okay, maybe not lawyers. Liquor, guns, and money sounds more like it. Costa Rica declared war on February 27, 1856, and an army began to assemble under General Jose Joaquin Mora. Walker decided to strike the first blow. He organized a battalion of around 400 men under the Hungarian filibuster Louis Schlesinger to cross the Costa Rican border and launch a preemptive strike. But the poorly disciplined, largely intoxicated filibusters were caught by surprise in the early morning hours of March 20th at Santa Rosa. General Mora's thousand-man force hit them like a Mack truck, and within five minutes the filibusters fled, suffering 59 killed. The Costa Rican army advanced into Nicaragua, aiming to cut the vital transit route. They seized the critical town of Ribas, and this prompted an immediate filibuster counterattack. The Second Battle of Ribas began on April 11, 1856, as a gang of hooting, hollering filibusters stormed into the center of the city, their strange, quiet little leader at their head with a rifle. Fierce street-to-street -street fighting erupted. Americans and Costa Ricans fought over barricades, fired cannons and revolvers, and charged with bayonets in the desperate fight for Ribas. At a critical stage of the battle, a teenage Costa Rican drummer boy named Juan Santa Maria volunteered to make a suicidal attack on one of the American positions. 
he charged across the plaza of Ribas, lit torch in his hand. Santa Maria was mortally wounded several times by American bullets, but not before he threw the torch into Walker's hideout, setting it ablaze. This attack forced Walker and his men to retreat, leaving 56 dead behind him. Costa Rica would not forget the sacrifice of Juan Santa Maria. The defeat at Rivas was counterbalanced by a massive cholera outbreak, which forced General Mora to pull his forces back to Costa Rica and regroup. This gave Walker a little bit of breathing room, but he not much, and he needed more. The Guatemalans and Hondurans were pushing in from the west, and the Nicaraguan resistance was giving him even more headaches. The breaking point came when Walker's puppet president, Patricio Rivas, grew a spine and defected to the resistance. Walker had Rivas declared a traitor to Nicaragua and held a new election for the presidency. On July 10, 1856, the Nicaraguan quote-unquote election chose none other than William Walker as the new president of Nicaragua. Gosh, what a coincidence. It was only one of the most blatantly rigged elections in history, with some of Walker's men openly casting 20 ballots apiece. 32-year-old William Walker, an increasingly violent and psychopathic mercenary from Tennessee, was now president of Nicaragua at least in name. But as if Walker didn't have enough problems, he had made an enemy out of the one group of people you never want to make mad. American capitalists, specifically Cornelius Vanderbilt, whose accessory transit company owned all the Nicaragua steamboats. Walker got involved in a scheme to steal the company out from under Vanderbilt, and when he was found out, he promptly seized all of accessory transit steamboats in the name of the Nicaraguan government. This caused Cornelius Vanderbilt, one of the richest people in the world, to say, oh, you want to play, huh? So he started shoveling a bunch of money into the Central American countries fighting against Walker. Surrounded by hostile countries, his only line of support coming from the American South and growing weaker by the day, Walker took the step that defined his regime. On September 22, 1856, by presidential decree, Walker revoked Nicaragua's 1824 Edict of Emancipation and made slavery legal again. We don't really know Walker's actual beliefs on slavery. Up to this point, he had been very quiet on the subject. He owned no slaves himself. So historians disagree to this day. Was Walker always pro-slavery? Or was he just making this declaration in a cynical bid to gain Southern support? My take, my personal take, is that Walker didn't care that much about slavery in principle like some radical Southerners. He wasn't passionate about it. But he was still a violent racist that would put a million people in chains if it kept him in power. And in the end, it didn't matter what he believed. It mattered what he did. The slaveholding South instantly rallied to Walker's cause. One newspaper encouraged Americans to immigrate to Nicaragua, saying that, in the name of the white race, he now offers Nicaragua to you and your slaves at a time when you have not a friend on the face of the earth. A Savannah business conference applauded the efforts being made to introduce civilization in the states of Central America and to develop these rich and productive regions by the introduction of slave labor. But if Walker's declaration made Southern slaveholders happy, it had the opposite effect on everyone else. For people in Europe and Latin America and the Northern United States, Walker had gone mask off 
and shown people the true face of his regime. And if Walker still hoped to win popular support from Nicaragua, this was the worst thing he could have done. Many Nicaraguans had been slaves or were descended from former slaves, and here Walker was threatening to put the chains back on. They rallied to expel the gringos, who had come promising freedom, but now promised slavery. Walker's legalization of slavery brought hundreds of enthusiastic Southern recruits, including several future Confederate officers. But even this surge of reinforcements wouldn't be enough to stop the furious Central American armies from closing the ring around him. The Europeans and the American government refused to help him after his slavery declaration. And these armies were now backed up by American capitalism. Cornelius Vanderbilt had decided that the best way to get rid of a rampant American mercenary was to hire a mercenary to catch him. His agent, Sylvanus Spencer, joined up with the Costa Rican army. Spencer led a commando detachment of Costa Rican soldiers over the mountains to the San Juan River and recaptured many of Vanderbilt's steamships. This daring maneuver cut off the transit road to the east, cutting Walker off from the Atlantic. In the meantime, Hondurans, Guatemalans, Salvadorans, and Nicaraguans were closing in from the west. The filibusters, drunk, disorganized, incompetent, more interested in looting and attacking defenseless civilians than in doing serious fighting, continued to underestimate their Latin American opponents. They ran headlong into rifle fire time and again, suffering horrendous casualties. One famous battle at San Jacinto on September 14, 1856, saw 300 filibusters thrown back by only 160 Nicaraguan rebels under Colonel Jose Estrada after a four-hour battle. 60 of the Nicaraguans were Matagalpa natives armed with only bows and arrows, and both they and Colonel Estrada were later canonized as Nicaraguan national heroes. With the Allies closing in, Walker was forced to abandon the capital city of Granada. But if he couldn't have it, no one could. In the most infamous act of his so-called presidency, Walker ordered the destruction of the city. The filibusters held the Allies back for a month as they forced terrified men, women, and children out at gunpoint before burning their home to the ground. The Americans, who had ransacked all the wine cellars in the city, were drunk off their butts and suffered over 50% casualties from enemy attacks. But when the filibusters escaped on December 14, 1856, they left a smoking ruin behind them, including the burnt-out shell of Granada's legendary cathedral. As a last act of spite, Walker's men left a sign on the shore that just said, Aquí fue Granada. Here was Granada. But Walker's defeat was inevitable. He had lost both ends of the transit route, and by April his army was falling apart from cholera and a lack of food, ammunition, and clothing. Allied forces had him and his last few filibusters pinned down once again in Ribas. Finally forced to admit defeat, Walker asked for help from the United States Navy. U.S. Navy Commander Charles H. Davis persuaded Walker to surrender on May 1, 1857. The gray-eyed man of destiny, still claiming to be president of Nicaragua, set sail for New York a captive on the USS St. Mary's. He knew exactly what would have happened if the Central Americans had taken him alive. He had executed too many people to have any illusions about that. But William Walker left a trail of destruction behind him. 
He had abandoned many of his own soldiers in order to save his own skin. Despite having a medical degree, Walker's lack of attention to sanitation and health, along with the astronomical alcohol consumption rate, had caused many more men to die from disease or deprivation than from battle. Though battle casualties had been remarkably high, even by the standards of the day, due to the filibuster's total lack of military experience. Most of the battles of the filibuster war, though relatively small scale, saw higher casualty rates than civil war battles a couple of years later. Walker had forced many Americans into his ranks at gunpoint, and stragglers would be coming into New York for the next few years, damning William Walker to the high heavens for leaving them to die. Walker had executed deserters and so-called traitors, destroyed and looted property, and burned the capital city of his stolen country as punishment for their alleged betrayal. Walker's two younger brothers had died in the expedition, both from disease, and he barely seemed to notice. And he returned to the United States a hero. Walker was greeted by cheering crowds when he arrived in New York City, passionate throngs of men and women who wanted to see the gray-eyed man of destiny. He appeared on the hotel balconies to wave at his fans. Senators, congressmen, governors from southern states praised Walker as a man's man who had fought to tame the wild half-breeds of Latin America and secure new territory for slavery. And Walker embraced this image to the hilt. He traveled the country, lecturing on the need to reconquer Nicaragua, blaming the northern abolitionists and the interfering U.S. government for his defeat. Walker called for an American slave empire in Central America, portraying slavery as a positive good and the only way to civilize the beastly peoples of Latin America. He talked about avenging the losses of 1856 and 1857, saying that, Too much good blood has been shed upon that soil to permit it to remain under the control of the degenerate race who had lorded over it for centuries. That blood will rise. And the South ate this up. They threw banquets for Walker. People asked for his autograph. They made plays about his adventures in Nicaragua. He was a media darling. Walker used his newfound fame to raise money and support because he was already preparing filibuster expedition number three. I mean, because the first two went so well, right? But it sounds like he was addicted. Addicted to filibustering. The thrill, the violence, the power. William Walker was determined to return to Nicaragua and resume his place as president. He still walked around saying he was the president of Nicaragua. I'm sure if you asked an actual Nicaraguan, they would have a somewhat different opinion. Walker set sail again on November 14, 1857 out of Mobile Harbor with 270 men. But this expedition didn't go so well. Walker and his men made landfall on the Nicaraguan coast, but they were then confronted by a U.S. Navy ship commanded by Commodore Hiram Paulding. Paulding declared Walker in violation of the Neutrality Act, forced him to surrender, and packed the filibusters off back to New York City. Southerners reacted with fury. Fury at Commodore Paulding for having the nerve to arrest Walker. Southern newspapers shrieked in outrage, and resolutions were passed in southern state capitals condemning Paulding's interference. Georgia congressman and future Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens wanted Paulding court-martialed for daring to stop Walker. One Tennessee congressman said that, A heavier blow was never struck at Southern rights than when Commodore Paulding perpetuated upon our people his high-handed outrage. I'm going to take a second here and point this out. 
Southerners were upset at the United States government for enforcing United States law and for not letting William Walker literally invade other countries to conquer new slave states. How dare they stop us from illegally invading other countries? Sounds bonkers, right? Well, this is your brain on slavery. The Walker-Paulding affair became a big deal, especially when a New Orleans jury acquitted Walker of violating the Neutrality Act in May 1858. Like I said, a jur Southern jury was never going to convict a filibuster. Walker began to prepare his next expedition. He took advantage of the Southern frenzy against the North to raise more money and recruits. In one speech, he appealed to the mothers of Mississippi to bid their sons buckle on the armor of war and battle for the institutions for the honor of the sunny South. Battle for the institutions of the South. Hmm. Hey, hey, William, uh, what institutions are those exactly? But all this enthusiasm didn't make Walker any more successful. His third Nicaraguan adventure fell apart in December 1858 when his steamship hit a reef and sank. The filibusters had to be rescued by the British Navy this time, and they received their usual warm welcome when they came back. But by this point, Walker's popularity was fading. His lack of success was becoming more apparent, and the survivors of his Nicaragua War had finally started to trickle in and tell their stories. And these stories did not make him look good. But Walker still laid his plans and decided to raise money this time by publishing an account of his adventures. The War in Nicaragua, published in 1860, the work called The War in Nicaragua, basically laid out how to steal a country. Something like uh, white supremacist imperialism for dummies. Walker also converted to Catholicism, probably one of the most cynical religious conversions in all of human history, in an effort to win over Latinos next time he traveled down south. In 1860, armed with more money and a new religion, William Walker set sail once again for the Caribbean. It was his fifth filibustering expedition. So far, he was 0 for 4, but the fifth one, well, that was definitely going to succeed. You kind of get the feeling he was playing Russian roulette, like there was an inevitable end to all of this. Well, there was. Walker had only 97 filibusters on this expedition, and his plan was no better than any of his other ones. He would capture a small island off the coast of Honduras, raise recruits, and make yet another bid to recapture his beloved Nicaragua. But once again, and for the last time, Walker fatally underestimated the Latinos he regarded as half-breed inferiors. A British ship forced him to flee into the interior, and he was hunted down by Honduran soldiers in a stunning race through the jungle. He and his surviving filibusters finally managed to surrender to the British. Walker figured that he would be sent back to America like usual, but this time, his luck had run out. The British and the Central Americans were freaking done with this guy. You ever watch Batman? Digression. You ever watch Batman or read Batman comics and you're like, why doesn't Batman just kill the Joker? Like, dude, just do it. Get rid of that guy. Well, the Royal Navy said, it's simple. We kill the Joker. Not us personally. No, they handed Walker over to the Central Americans, the Hondurans, who knew exactly how to deal with him. On Wednesday, September 12th, 1860, the small, quiet, pale little man was led out of his cell in the fortress of Trujillo. The people of the town gathered to insult and taunt him, the pirate, the devil, the man who wanted to put them back in chains. They got no reaction from his cold, emotionless eyes. The soldiers placed him in a corner. After priests were finished with the last rites, 
four soldiers stepped forward and raised their rifles. They fired two rounds each. Then a Honduran officer stepped forward, pulled his revolver, and fired a final shot into Walker's head, just to be sure the snake was dead. The greatest of all the filibusters, the man who had caused the deaths of thousands in his reckless quest for power, was gone. In papers discovered before his death, the British had found a document laying out Walker's future plans for a slave empire, a league that would God perpetuate and extend the institution of Negro slavery as the basis of the most solid, durable, and beneficial social and industrial system which exists in the world. William Walker died as he had lived, a warrior for slavery, and he died on the eve of the American Civil War. William Walker was the most infamous of the filibusters, but he was also the last. Every American was now much more concerned with the approach of the 1860 election, the sectional power struggle that would literally divide the nation in two. But the filibuster movement had done its part to divide the country. Walker and men like him had alienated the North and exhilarated the South, and the South blamed the North for Walker's failure and his death. Southerners raged at abolitionists and Yankees for failing to support the filibusters, for condemning Walker, for disrespecting Southern rights. The filibusters had wanted to expand America, but they only contributed to its division. Three months after Walker's death, South Carolina seceded from the Union, and within seven months, the Civil War had begun. And the new Confederacy was led by men who had dreamed of a Caribbean empire of slavery, men like Jefferson Davis and Alexander Stevens and Robert Toombs and Stephen Mallory. Many of Walker's former comrades and filibusters fought for the Confederacy. A secret organization, the Knights of the Golden Circle, promoted that golden circle of slave states all around the Caribbean to be achieved after the war was over. The Confederate Constitution guaranteed that if the Confederacy acquired new territory, unspecified new territory, hint, hint, look down south, that the institution of Negro slavery as it now exists in the Confederate states shall be recognized and protected by Congress and by the territorial government. It was crystal clear, despite their denials, what the Confederacy intended to do if it ever achieved its independence. It was pretty darn clear to every country in Latin America, too, which is why none of them ever gave any support to the South in the Civil War, any real support. The same men who led the South into the Civil War were the ones who had wanted to build a Latin American slave empire. And who knows what they would have achieved if they had won? the dream of a white supremacist manifest destiny Caribbean empire of slavery, a darker dream than I think we can even comprehend, did not die with William Walker and Trujillo in 1860. It died in 1865 at Appomattox. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? So that is the story of the filibusters and William Walker, one of the most forgotten episodes in American history. And guys, it is still bizarre to me that more people don't know about this. This episode right here, this one, was one of the very first episodes I knew for certain that I was going to do. When I started planning this podcast, well, the filibusters were one of the four or five subjects that first came into my head. So one thing I keep noticing about the filibusters is that these guys were not effective soldiers. Not at all. A gang of drunken, slack-jawed yokels, random American freelancers, unified by a lust for adventure and profit. 
I think it's worth pointing out that the only filibuster expedition to actually succeed and steal a country, William Walker in Nicaragua, was invited in by one side in the Civil War, and if this hadn't happened, it probably wouldn't have succeeded. I'm going to advance a radical thesis here and say that not only was William Walker a bad leader and a bad person, despite his fancy degrees, he honestly just wasn't that bright, <laughs> just on a sheer competence level. His filibusters lost most of their battles due to incompetence and stupidity, and Walker, despite not being a drunken lush like the rest of them, doesn't really seem to have been an exception to this rule. He utterly failed to build up any sort of overarching strategy, going out of his way to piss off the Nicaraguans and everyone else every chance he got until they overwhelmed him. So that's a good lesson on how not to steal a country. Maybe don't alienate 99% of the people in that country. Walker's declaration legalizing slavery fired up Nicaraguan resistance when that was the last thing Walker needed. But besides the military points, there's a historical significance to this story. I've often heard some folks say, especially when they're trying to defend the Confederate side of the Civil War, that the South was only defending its rights, that it was just minding its own business before the Civil War began, that slavery was dying out on its own and there was no need for a Civil War to end it. Well, I think today's story proves that false. The South wasn't minding its own business. It was actively planning to expand and conquer new slave territory. Far from being an outmoded institution that would have died out on its own, the American institution of slavery was never stronger, never more expansive, never more aggressive than in the years leading up to the Civil War. My point is that the filibuster movement reveals another side to the Civil War. The threat that an independent confederacy would have posed to every country in Latin America. And this isn't just speculation, because in Nicaragua, William Walker had shown the world exactly what Southerners planned to do. The filibusters may have been mostly failures, but the one time they didn't fail, this was the result. So if the South won the Civil War, alternate history, how long would it have been before the filibusters came back? This time with more men, better armed, better led, better organized, with experience of modern war and supported by a slave government. How large would the Confederate slave empire have become? If that doesn't send a chill down your spine, it should. There are darker timelines than the one we live in now. So why don't we remember William Walker and the filibusters today? Well, the United States doesn't, not really. But you know who does remember them? Latin America. William Walker is a much bigger part of their history than he is ours. Every country in Central America regards the filibuster war as their national war, the moment when they all came together to defeat the big foreign invasion. The Costa Rican drummer boy Juan Santa Maria, who sacrificed himself heroically at Ribas, is a national martyr. If you fly into San Jose today, you'll fly into Juan Santa Maria Airport and see a statue of the young soldier in the largest park in the city. There are monuments in Mexico and Cuba to celebrate their defeat of the filibusters. Nicaragua has a whole score of anti-filibuster heroes and a national holiday, the Fiestas Patrias, to celebrate their independence and defeat of the American invader. We have forgotten all about William Walker, for Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Honduras, he is their great villain. They're the Darth Vader of their history. And this began the long history of Latin American distrust of the United States, which continues to this day. Just to give you an example, 
1988, there was a movie that came out in America, an American movie called Walker, starring Ed Harris as William Walker. The movie made about zero money in the USA. No one even knew what it was talking about. It, no one understood the historical reference. But you know where it made bank? Nicaragua, where everyone, even people who really couldn't afford to, went to see this movie. Farmers would give up more than a day's wage to go see this movie. Because Americans may have forgotten. For us, it was just a weird, obscure thing that happened. Some historians remember it, but nobody else. But for Central Americans, it was one of the defining moments of their history. The most patriotic moments in their history. They couldn't forget even if they wanted to. Americans forgot William Walker. Maybe we wanted to forget. We have a bad habit of ignoring the darker parts of our history, the history that makes us feel bad. And there are some folks out there who want you to forget all about any part of American history that makes you feel bad. Well, I'll say, if you learn anything from this podcast, it's that maybe history isn't supposed to make you feel good sometimes. That learning the bad is just as important as learning the good. To understand our history, we have to deal with all of it and deal with it honestly. Because some folks would prefer for reasons of their own, that William Walker remains an unknown soldier. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope you learned something, even if it's that alcohol and stealing countries do not mix. If you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it, especially if they can help you with your filibuster infestation. Exterminator comes down, yup, looks like you got filibusters. Pulls up the board to show a bunch of little drunk dudes in cowboy hats shooting pistols in the air. Anyway, okay. If you don't like what you've heard today, tell your enemies and tip off the authorities if you see a so-called mining expedition loading up too many guns. Find all my sources, some maps, some images on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button there as well. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod, or just drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for joining me on this journey, and I will see you again on Monday, only here on Unknown Soldiers. Oh, oh, oh.